Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. And today it is the NBA draft. Some people's absolute favorite part of the season. The 2022 year has wrapped. And I mean, I guess technically we're still in the 2022 season, but really it's uh, the draft is all about the future and excitement. And if you're a fashion head, it's all about the outfits. Uh, Chip, did you have a favorite outfit? Oh, I had a night. whole tier list. And you, can, can we go to your Twitter and get a, a fashion tiering of who who was S-class tier last night on the stage? I got a lot of hate for this, though, so I don't know if you want to broadcast my opinions. Mine were uh, not, not, not aligned with other people. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll let people go to your Twitter and check okay. it out. Yeah. To, to help us walk through the draft. As many of you know, I, I have no time uh, anymore to scout young prospects and watch the G League and college and things like that. But uh, we do one of our great video scouts. Chip Jones is all over the draft, left, right, up and down. He lives it and breathes it. And he's going to, the goal of this, I think, is for for Chip to basically help orient you and your favorite team on where these guys are right now and where they may be going. It's it's extremely difficult to really act accurately forecast all these players down the road. So Chip is uh, pretty darn well-versed on where these guys are today and, and sort of the growth plate that they could grow into. Chip, thanks so much for doing this. How, how are you feeling a day after the draft is finally here? You know, I'm... Honestly, like the the most important thing to me is like you see all these like young kids grow all season and now they finally just get like a life changing amount of money. So I'm just like happy for everyone. You know, I feel I feel good. Yeah, no, that that is definitely um, that emotional release is probably the coolest part of the draft to me. Um, Before we we go through, we'll start with Paolo Bencaro at the top of the magic and we'll kind of work our way through. I want to talk about his height. I still I still can't get over his height. I've been thinking about this for a while. We've talked about it a little bit in our group chats and things like that. The The draft is such a difficult, inexact science. And guys like you, um, front offices around the league, they put in all this work and it's far better than nothing, right? Like you're light years ahead of where someone like I am is right now, not knowing anything. So it's not fair, I think, to say, like, God, look at all the misses and look at all these things. Like, it's fundamentally going to have a hit rate with some degree of missing uh, involved. It's like batting average in baseball. Like, a 400 average is, is an amazing average in baseball. And you want to go from, you know, 250 to 350. That's kind of the goal. In, in draft accuracy, I don't know what it is, but I can give you some numbers. Because I looked back through... I wanted to, I wanted to like, look at pace and space era players. Um ish you know if you go back to like 2012 that feels like teams were drafting for pace and space more of the young players coming in are thinking about okay we know guys are going to shoot threes we know there's going to be more room on the floor to attack closeouts things like that but that doesn't give us many drafts so i went back to 2008 i looked at 2008 to, to 2017 first thing is in an average draft you're going to get about four to five all-stars that that seems to be the number you know 2008 produced seven all-stars 2011 produced seven all-stars um a low year like 2003 has only produced three (laughs) all-stars but 
you know, you usually get like four or five all-stars on average, and a good number of those all-stars will be all NBA players and a couple um, will be MVPs. Have you, do you have anything you want to add on this? I know you've looked at draft success and failures as well. No, for sure. I, I think it's really interesting because I think we don't really have enough data, but like even that like pace and space era stuff, I feel like it's starting to become outdated almost already where we're we're kind of like this like hyper modernization in the game and all of a sudden, you know, we're shooting into all these super tall ball handlers. I mean, next year I think there's like three guys in the projected lotto that are all seven foot ball handlers. So I mean, you know, we're really moving in this direction of just getting even bigger. So it's gonna be interesting to see how they head forward. Yeah, and and part of the thing that's fascinating to me about that is when I was growing up, the game was a little bit more stable strategically. And so it kind of felt like you were learning and figuring out the archetypes and like, oh, this is a this is a six six big athletic wing who can get his own jumper off within 18 feet, handle larger defenders, dribble with the basketball. Um, this is a center who has some ball skills and has a hook shot and like can protect the rim and his timing on shot blocking is good. All that kind of stuff has slowly vaporized over the years. And so one of the fun parts of the draft to me is that it's it's feeling more like a moving target in the last five or 10 years as you think about like what skill sets do players have already and then how are they going to develop going forward as the league continues to tinker and change and evolve in the arms race that's taking place. So, okay, I want to get to the draft. We're going to we're going to start with the magic at the top as I said, but a few more a few more things jumped out at me about looking at like a decade's worth of recent drafts. Um, one of them is that there is about an all-star per draft to be found in the 11 to 20 range. Uh, by my count, from 2008 to 2017, we had 12 all-stars in the 11 to 20 range. And then there were 11 more all-stars outside of 20. So there's this distribution where, yes, usually all the top talent is at the top, but if you're picking in the teens, if your team is sitting there, if you're the, uh, I mean, who who picked in this these positions last night? The the Bulls, the Rockets, the Hawks, the Hornets, the Timberwolves, the Spurs, teams like that. About once a draft, there's an all star talent sitting in that position. And then if you have a late first round pick or even a second round pick, we've seen not only all star players, but we've seen some pretty monster talents. Um, you know. Rudy Gobert, Draymond Green, Nikola Jokic. Yeah. <laughs> these, these are all guys taken outside the top 20 in the draft. And even within the top 10, um, you have a distribution of where a lot of the sort of, let's say, Hall of Fame type of players come from. These, these franchise-changing talents. You know, Steph Curry went seventh. Dame Lillard went sixth. Uh, Westbrook was fourth. Hard, the number three position chip just in this time period. James Harden went third. Joel Embiid went third. Jason Tatum went third. Luka Doncic went third. Uh, three of those guys were definitely talked about as number one picks. And in this weird thing, like, slipped to third instead of going second. And then there's the curse of the number two pick. There's, like, no amazing high-end talent that's been taken number two um, in, in a long time. It depends on what pans out in the, in the recent drafts. And then, of course, you have your number one guy. So those are all the successes. And then what about like the busts, the failures? What's, what's the miss rate on top 10 picks? 2018 to 2000, uh, excuse me, 2008 to 2017, in that decade of drafts, I counted, and I 
didn't want to be too aggressive with this. I mean, I'm talking about guys that couldn't even stay in the league. I counted 38 misses, just busts, guys that kind of flamed out. So that's about four out of every 10 top 10 picks. 40% of your top 10 picks are going to be what fans and probably the franchise considers total misses, just total busts. Um, So keep that in mind as we go through because the temptation, I think, is to say, this guy's a top 10 talent. This guy's a lottery talent. Um, the consensus has him at this position. And we just kind of know that there's a, there's usually a limit on the number of those guys that will actually pan out. And there is a very high probability that the guys that don't pan out um, just kind of miss. They they end up playing in Europe or their, their career never takes off in the NBA. Um, again, I don't know if you have any reactions to that before we start, but... That's I wanted to kind of put that reminder in there before we go through and assess like, all right, this guy was number four on the consensus Twitter draft board. No, I mean, for sure. I think I'm definitely more of a realist than a lot of people when it comes to draft stuff where like, I think people look at my looked at my board and some of my friends and they were like, you know, you have all these players like really high that are like not, you know, super high ceiling players. And I'm like, yeah, but I know they're going to be a role player. It's like mm. most years you get like 20 guys that like really stick in a rotation in like that are going to be in a rotation in like six, seven years. Yep. So like once I get out of like the lottery, I'm just trying to shoot for role players. I think we saw that even last night with some teams that we'll get to later on. So I definitely think it's uh, it's important to be a realist when looking at draft stuff. So philosophically, like this reminds me a little of what we talked about a few years ago, I think on this show um, I, with Coles Wicker about Grant Williams, you know, like even if a guy doesn't look like he has some insane ceiling to you, are you a proponent of saying the median outcome is a role player? The median outcome of his floor is a guy who can be in a rotation and play 10 or 15 years, like like the Danny Green career, in other words, are you philosophically a, a proponent of taking those guys much higher versus kind of swinging for the fences on the boomer bus prospects? Oh, absolutely. And I think the I think one thing that I look at that's really big, and I look at this especially with Memphis, who's like probably my favorite ran team. I think I think they were my favorite draft tonight as well, um, or last night. I guess they uh, they do Chip's a really been good up job. all night. He does. He does. Yeah, even I don't even know what day it is. <laughs> um, no, I mean it, it's crazy um they, they're really good at like surrounding their stars like when they do take that swing when they did get jaw they had a lot of really competent players around him that put him in a position to succeed right and i think i'm really big on that and being able to you know a lot of teams they'll sign rotation players that are like good enough to be rotation players but maybe don't fit their kind of philosophical idea just to get nba caliber players on the court whereas i think in the draft you have a chance to pick a guy that is going to fit kind of the way you want to play and is going to be an NBA player, a rotation player, I think that's really valuable and kind of underrated. So how many guys uh, do you think in this draft, in your assessment, kind of meet that criteria of like, I'm going to draft him with star potential? Is it is it five in your head? Is it 10? Is it 15? Uh, before you answer, we've got this really cool NBA Twitter consolidation board that I think Grizz Imperative, I think that's the account that puts that out. Is that right? Yeah, they're the one who posted it. It's it's like like a collective project. So there's a couple people on it. Yeah. So basically, they take a lot of the um, sort of NBA Twitter um, hive mind and and put together who who was the highest on someone's board, who was the lowest on someone's board. They average out all these boards that come from NBA Twitter. And glancing at that, they had Chet Holmgren 
number one, Ben Carroll, number two, Jabari Smith, number three, Jaden Ivey, four. And then there's kind of a drop. If you look at that from the group think, that's like your big four players. And then you just eyeballing a chip, I'd say you have another tier of like, what, six or seven guys um, ranging from the Keegan Murrays of the world, Durin, Shaden Sharp, Johnny Davis, Jeremy Sohan, that are kind of in the next tier. And then you see more of a drop off. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say I think I think in general the consensus was, the, was that there's like eleven guys that kind of top eleven. Okay. I, I think it was more of a nine for me, but again, it's like pretty much. I think that was, I guess, the consensus idea. Yeah. Okay, so um, we're all nine of those guys picked in the in the top nine. Is is the question for you of my nine guys? Yeah. No, no, they were not. Okay, who was outside it? I did not that there was not in my top nine yeah, that got sl- picked in the top slipped? nine. Who yeah, slipped? Exactly. Um, I think I think Jalen Duran at thirteen slipped. Um, I'm a really really big fan of Jalen Duran. I uh, I'm a bit floored that Charlotte, with their kind of need of interior presence, traded away the pick for Jalen Duran. That was a little surprising to me. And then the other guy in my top nine was AJ Griffin, who obviously has the injury issues concerns. So that kind of makes sense why he slipped. But those were the two that kind of uh, slipped down for me. Okay, we'll we're, we'll circle back to them yeah. in a minute when we hit them. Let's start with the magic. Um, you know, obviously a higher profile prospect in Boncaro. I I, I want to start with the fact that he, the man measured at six ten and a half. Do you buy, do you buy this measurement? Because in the old days when you put measurements up on your uh, NBA rosters and NBA.com and your programs, you always rounded up and you took heights and shoes and things like that. That means Paolo Boncaro for like. 50 years of NBA basketball would be listed at seven feet. And of course, some of the skills he has and the way he moves, and you alluded to it, uh, these seven footers with the ball skills, ball handling, of course, his passing, um, that just blew my mind. I was like, how can he actually be that tall? Is he that tall? And kind of what else do we need to know about where he is right now and, and you know how he's going to fit or what are they going to build around him, I guess, in Orlando? Yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely really interesting. I, I'm not a thousand, I'm not sure it's exactly six, ten and a half in without shoes, because I think that was like supposed to be the without shoes measurement. Mm-hmm. I'm not, not sure if I think six, but I wouldn't be surprised if he was actually like flat six, ten without shoes, because he is, so he's huge. He's huge. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I definitely think it's interesting. I think like the first thing was like, if you read the reports and everything, a lot of people are going to say, um, that maybe Paolo wasn't like the, the most efficient and he wasn't necessarily like the, the most NBA ready. I guess I think people looked at like Jabari as kind of the more NBA ready guy than Paolo, which I actually kind of disagree with. So one thing with prospects is like, you know, you can develop a shot, you can develop a lot of skill sets, but like the easiest thing you can do is just change their role, just use them differently than they were in college. And I think Paolo had about, I think, 60 pick and roll ball handling reps. Whereas if you go back to his high school and AAU to it, the stuff that got him to be a top three prospect and such a hyped player he was like a point guard running pick and roll every possession down the floor. So, I mean, I think when you look at the way that Paolo is going to be used, you're looking at some guy who can play as both sides of the pick and roll as the screener or the ball handler and can do it at a very, very, very high level. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. that's scary. Yeah. Um, although you you have shared some stuff on his passing. Uh, and certainly if you watch some of his college games, I think that jumps out as well. So this this goes back to what you said earlier about like there's a new there's a new wave that's continuing to come. Uh, and he certainly may be part of it. Where is he 
defensively right now? Is this sort of your classic big, sexy college superstar with offensive upside and there's defensive lags or, or gaps that need to fill in? Or do you think he's you know capable of stepping on the court and relatively quickly kind of being a positive NBA defender? Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. So like the first one of the first things with Paolo is a lot of people think he kind of overbulked when he was prepping for college. He was probably more closer to like 230 in high school in AAU and he's listed 250 this year. So he put on quite a bit and he had a he had a lot of issues like cramping where he would have to come out of games cuz of like cramps and stuff and he had this really high offensive usage so he kind of took defensive possessions off sometimes and mm. kind of rested and I think that hurt him a bit but I think as like a help defender he's really smart and I think he's really good at not fouling on the interior. So I definitely think he can be a positive defender, but I definitely think the defense is a bit behind at this point, especially with like, I'm not, the one real question for me is what are you going to do with ball screens? Because he kind of struggled when he was covering ball screens. They would switch him, but he would kind of be sit a fit, or like sitting a bit back and he'd get blown by quite a bit. So that's kind of going to be the interesting thing for me to look at with how Orlando approaches that. He, you're almost describing someone that, Sounds like uh, the Giannis mold, not necessarily as a direct comp, but he's a guy who can play four or five. He's huge. Um, you may have enough athleticism that you can get away with switching down the road, which I assume would be ideal, and then offensively can play both sides of the pick and roll. Is that is that crazy talk, or I'm just it, pulling that out from sort of how you've talked through him in the last two minutes? Yeah, I mean, I would say the the big difference is there is like Paolo doesn't have the same length that Giannis has. He has like quite short arms for how tall he is. He's got like a plus maybe two wingspan or something, so he doesn't have super mm. long arms. So I'm not sure how much the like rim protection stuff. And I wouldn't say, I think Paolo's like, in terms of his athleticism, Paolo has that similar level of fluidity and he's very like his proprioceptive kind of things are very good. Whereas in terms of like pure speed, I don't think he's like necessarily the fastest player compared to like a normal NBA player. Not like he's fast for a 6'10 guy, but not like fast like Giannis is fast for anyone almost, you know? Yeah, of course. I don't think we're going to do many comps no. um, on, on this show. I just want I was just fascinated by sort of how you were describing him and thinking about how big he is in this wave of like giant two way big men, if you will, that are coming down the pike. OK, speaking of uh, a giant man, um, someone who I believe you had at the top of your board after much deliberation and scouting, the Thunder took Chet Holmgren from Gonzaga at number two. Um Chip, I'm just going to let you go. What should people know about Chet coming into the 2023 season? Well, I mean, the first the first thing with Chet that everyone's going to look at is like the weight stuff. Um, so I would say the, the one thing is like he's really good when he, see, when he sees contact coming and predicts that it's coming. He's really good at moving his body in ways to prevent offensive players from getting into his body. He does a good job of things like lowering his center of gravity. Um, he'll always kind of, you know, when someone's posting up, he'll stick his arms out. So when they push back to try and hit him, his arms are come, coming back and absorbing a lot of that contact and maintaining space between him and the guy he's defending. So I think there's a lot of things with that. And I'd also say like, people are like, oh, NBA coaches are going to look at him and just attack him. That's what every coach he's played against for six years has done. Every <laughs> single one has tried to do that. And it has not worked really for any of them. So I would keep that in mind. But I mean, the big thing is like Chet is truly an elite defensive prospect. He's just so, so, so smart. And one of the weird things that I noticed when looking at a lot of his blocks is that 
he's honestly kind of getting a lot of swipe downs where he's just so coordinated and flexible and he tracks the ball so well that he's just on the way up for a finish, just swiping it out of the player's hands. So, I mean, he's really like, and I, I, he's just so competitive and he's so smart and fluid. And so I think he can kind of be a primary or a secondary rim protector. And I think he gives you a lot of flexibility on that defensively. And then offensively, I think he's got a ton of useful skills. He's a great finisher. He works really well in the pick and roll. He can space the floor. He's a good connective passer. He's a good ball handler when he can get his handle down. He kind of struggled starting his handle at Gonzaga because players would get up under him and he can't get the ball down on the floor. So once he gets that first dribble, he's a lot better as a handler, but kind of struggled with that. And then the biggest thing for Chet on the kind of offensive end is in transition. So many grab and go, just grab the rebound, run full court. He's got plenty of moves to get around defenders. And once he gets, you know, to the three point line, it's just two steps and he's going to dunk it. So, I mean, just elite transition stuff, elite defense, and a lot of really useful offensive skills. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. So I said I want to avoid uh, comps, mm-hmm. um, and I still theoretically do, mm-hmm. but the archetype of Chet has kind of fascinated me and the idea of like new unseen archetypes coming in. Um, as a number two pick, as someone you had overall number one, as a really high-end prospect, as someone you want to draft here for the Thunder and hit a massive home run with, uh, is it fair to say like what we just saw in the finals from someone like Rob Williams juiced up or expanded this like rim gravity, uh, extra passing, short roll passing, massive defensive presence in the paint, you know, he has some mobility, but we're really thinking about how he terrorizes guys from the weak side, et cetera, et cetera. Is it kind of fair to say that's the direction you see Chet um, coming into the league as, and growing it? Yeah, I mean, I would say there's a couple big differences there, though, just like in terms of Chet's so big that like, I think, you know, when you look at kind of those undersized big man, great leapers, kind of like under that Robert Williams mold, they can sometimes struggle as finishers just because they're not as tall and they're on the inside. Chet, I think, was one of the best finishers we've ever seen. I mean, he finished over 80% at the rim. So, I mean, he's. I think the, the big difference is Chet's just going to get so many easy points at the rim. And then in terms of like Robert Williams, you know, he's really good with connective kind of passing, but he's not really putting the ball on and dribbling and moving right. the ball. And Chet is very good at that. So, I would say in, in senses, there's a lot of similarities. But I think with Chet's like height and his finishing, and then also being able to handle the ball, he adds a ton of value there on top of what a Robert Williams would give you. Yeah, I'm interested to see if he can kind of expand that archetype into into something almost new. Um, third pick in the draft, the Houston Rockets took someone who it was discussed as the number one pick. I alluded to earlier all those number three home runs historically that were discussed as number one and slipped to three. Jabari Smith from Auburn technically fits that bill. He's really interesting prospect and kind of polarizing prospect because he's like huge and has this great looking jumper and his shooting indicators were off the charts. But then there's kind of questions everywhere else. Um, where do you land on him right now? Like, what does he have to improve? And sort of how do you feel about this situation with him in Houston? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really interesting situation because I think, you know, with Houston, I feel like there's been a lot of talent and maybe not as as they're not really maximizing the talent they have maybe where there's not like it's not um, kind of converting to wins, I guess. And Jabari's kind of that like winning player where he's like his effort levels are off the chart. He's a really good defender. He can get you points. Um, the thing for me with Jabari that I'm looking at him kind of developing this season would be moving better without the ball because I think at hmm. times at Auburn, um, you know, there were some games where they had Walker Kessler who also went in the first round as a center and certain teams couldn't really stop a Walker Kessler pick and roll. So Jabari would kind of get sat in the corner and he wouldn't necessarily do much without the ball there. And I think for someone who kind of projects as more of an off-ball shooter in the NBA, that's going to be something that's important to improve. And then again, trying to look at how his finishing goes now that he has that kind of NBA spacing. Because I think a lot of times with college, we get caught up in like uh, certain players had good spacing on their team and others didn't. And they're like, oh, well, when they get NBA spacing. But I think with the court being bigger and the shooters shooting more, right? Every player kind of benefits from that NBA spacing. And Jabari kind of struggles as a finisher. I think he was in the 50s at the rim at 6'10 in the half court, which is kind of underwhelming. Usually for a player of that size, you want something closer to like 70s. So that's a little bit concerning. So it's going to be interesting how the finishing goes and if he can move better without the ball for me. Is the is the finishing thing, do you think that's like a hand size? Is that because he struggles so much off the bounce scoring? Like, uh, is it just his quick leaping? Like what actually drilling down jumped out to you about why he struggled so much finishing? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing for me is he's he plays pretty much exclusively below the rim. His vertical leap is like not super great. There were times where he was able to get up when he was allowed like this longer load time to get up off two feet and it was like an open kind of runway. And it's going to be interesting to see if that becomes more of the norm for him. But for the most part, he's playing below the rim. And then the other thing I'd say is he kind of has these really stiff shoulders. So, you know, when you're gliding through the paint, trying to get these finishing angles, especially if you're not really a contact finisher, which I feel like he he's good at getting into contact, but he doesn't really use it to create space. He prefers getting an open window to finish and having this kind of stiffness kind of prevents him from getting these windows. So when you're playing below the rim and you want to open these windows and you sometimes struggle maneuvering into them, that causes a lot of awkwardness. And in general, I don't think his like touch, his shooting form and shooting touch, I guess you could say is really good. But outside of that, I don't really think his touch is super perfect, I guess. Would you say day one in your assessment, do you think he's going to be better on the defensive end when he steps on the court in Houston or the offensive end? Um, I would probably say the defensive end, I think. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Next at number four, the Kings took Keegan Murray from Iowa. If you look at some of the other boards, um, Chip, I think you had him eighth, yeah. if I recall correctly off the top of my head. But he's definitely in that next tier. If we looked at the sort of NBA Twitter consensus board, I think he comes out at fifth in that five through 10, five through 11 range. Um, what what do we need to know about him and kind of what 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 do we expect day one in Sacramento? Yeah, I mean, that's that's going to be the the really interesting thing. So Keegan, for me, like the first stat that really jumps out, that's like the biggest thing with Keegan that I think kind of really helps explain him is among major conference college players in the entire Bart Torvik database, which is going back through 2008, um, Keegan is the first high major player to maintain a usage above 25% and a turnover percentage below eight. So mm-hmm. he's just very mistake free. I've kind of always compared him to like a, he's like a robot. He's very programmable. Um 
you can just, if he knows what to do in a situation, his level of execution is phenomenal, right? However, that kind of like creativity spontaneously thrown in a situation, make a decision, he really struggles to kind of create some idea on his own, I guess you could say. You know, he's a bit more, um, he's a bit more of a learned player. He's more kind of on the academy brain side than like the feel for the game playing on intuition side. So a lot of times when you have high usage, low turnover guys, historically, it's because they kind of slant towards shooting. So you don't have the same level of playmaking, which can bump your turnovers up naturally. Um, You know, you're not trying all these passes and assists. Where would, where would you say he kind of is day one as a playmaker? Um, You know, in other words, you go to a lottery team like Sacramento, can we expect kind of a two pronged offensive player right out of the gate? Or do you see him as more of a complimentary offensive player? Help help kind of paint a picture or get some feel around, mm-hmm. you know, the, the fuller package. Because uh, that stat is so fascinating to be the only guy with that high usage and low assists. Um, yeah, I mean... Low turnovers. Yeah, sorry. yeah. He also yeah. had low assists, so that would have probably fit too, but he probably wouldn't go. have been the only one. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, Keegan, so for me, like, he scores really well at all three levels. I think... Um, What's really interesting is if you pull up his synergy profile for a player that's like so high usage, it's like incredible how efficient he was in so many different areas of the game. Um, among, I, I know off the top of my head, among post up players, um, he had, what is it, 106 possessions as a post up offensive player. He was 100th percentile in terms of points per possession. He was the most efficient post player in the country. Um, wow. In transition, he was 98th percentile. Spot up shooting, he was 89th. Uh, putbacks 94th, isolation 94th, uh, PNR rollman 93rd, PNR Paul Anderley 88, cutting 83, um, off screens so 86. Is, this is complete. Yeah, yeah, this is complete. Yeah, yeah he's just like a, an, a hyper efficient three level score. Um, you know, he can hit the, I think Iowa ran a lot of like zippers and kind of floppy actions to get him the ball on the perimeter for like shots where he just catch sets and shoots. Um, he's really good at getting like, he's, he does his work early for post position. So a lot of transition stuff, he'll get cross matched on some smaller player and he'll just post them up. And if he gets the ball, it's just like one bump with the shoulder, turn around jumper and he's got it every time. So, I mean, for Keegan with me, it's like, I don't think his passing is nearly at that level. Again, like that more creative stuff. And Iowa kind of had to turn to him to run the offense a lot of the time. And his handle is not at that level. He goes for these very kind of protective dribbles and he doesn't really ever turn the corner. And so I wouldn't think that you're going to get him to create a lot of offense per se. But when you put him next to a guy like DeMontis Sabonis, who's going to be able to feed him those like kind of opportunities, Keegan moves well without the ball and he's just so efficient. And, you know, he, once he knows what decision he's expected to make and is the correct one, his level of execution is just perfect. Mm. Um Let's jump to the last guy who was in that sort of Twitter draft board top four consensus. He's someone that has popped to me when I've seen footage of him. Just an extraordinary athlete. And, you know, I think in many ways we have seen small guard athletes flame out over the years that have been picked in the top 10. But usually you think like, man, that gives you a floor as an NBA player because that athleticism really looks like it's going to translate. Pistons took Jaden Ivey from Purdue, another, another big 10 guy. Um, just chip have the floor. What, where are you on him right now? And kind of what, what should people know coming in day one? Yeah. So I, Jaden Ivey is my third ranked prospect. He was, um, I think for me, like Chet and Paolo were kind of in a tier by themselves. And then I think Jaden Ivey was also in a tier by himself where he's closer to Paolo and Chet than everyone else. 
like he's closer to that Paolo and Chat level than he is the next best guys, in my opinion. Right. Yeah, I think makes, it was makes sense. I think it was really good value for um, Detroit to get him here. So the thing with I, or with Ivy is he's just a fun, truly phenomenal, like one hundredth percentile athlete like a perfect functional basketball athlete he's quick he's fast he's strong um he gets up off the floor super easily so the big thing with ivy offensively is there's some questions about a if he can finish going left he kind of struggles when he's forced left and also his shot he didn't really shoot super well off the dribble and there wasn't a ton in terms of like the mid-range that kind of in-between area he didn't get a lot of work done there but he did shoot very well off the catch and he also took a lot of NBA range threes where he was shooting a couple steps behind the three-point line. So part of the thing with Ivy is you can't you can't face guard him because he'll just get past you. He'll blow right past you. He's too strong and too quick almost for anyone who's not like an elite level of athlete. So because he gets that extra margin of error, it makes things a lot easier for him. And then with Purdue, they played through their bigs. So they didn't really necessarily optimize him per se. How, how tall is he? What is, what's his wingspan? Like he's one of those guys that you could say almost any number within a five inch range right now. And I would believe you because when you watch him play, he's so explosive and can get up above the rim so quickly. So what, what are his actual measurements that he's working with? Yeah. So I think with Ivy, he didn't do the combines. We didn't get those, but I believe he is six foot four with a wingspan that's somewhere between six. I think it's like maybe six ten, but I also wouldn't be surprised. I think it, I think it's six ten, and I think he's six four. Okay. The reason why I asked that was, again, not to comp, but thinking about archetypes and Mm -hmm. historical successes, the Dwayne Wade model was in my head. Those are almost exactly Dwayne Dwayne Wade's like 6'3 and change with like a 6'10 wingspan. So we're we're talking like that level of potential athlete and kind of however you want to think about that. I think at this point, combo guard, um, lead guard, whatever. I think I think that's what we're dealing with with him. Um, one more because you helped scout our video on Cade Cunningham and you're intimate with his career going back to high school. How, what do you feel about the fit here with these guys? You know, does it help one or the other? And kind of what, what should we expect in terms of these, these players complementing each other as they grow? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a really interesting to see. Going back to Cade's kind of high school career, he's never really played with a player like this. I think yeah. the the player on his team that was smaller than him was Moses Moody, which is just like nothing like this, right? So it's going to be interesting. But I think with like how much Cade loves throwing lobs, he likes floor spacers and lob threats, right? And if Cade can collapse that defense, it makes it so much harder, right? Because if defenders help off to stop Cade from penetrating, you can't give Ivy a closeout because he's just going to destroy any closeout you give him. So I think it's like, I think Jaden Ivey is probably the best weapon Kate has had the chance to play with yet in probably any level. So it's going to be really interesting to see how he optimizes him. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty interested to see um, how that works out as well. So moving on, we, we've, we've been in the Midwest for a while here. Iowa, Purdue, we're going to stay in state. The Pacers um, took from Arizona, Benedict Mathurin? Mathurin. <sighs> We, we need to start this whole podcast all over. You're, it's, it's nowhere near as bad as the guy who was doing the intros. I, he tried to get real flashy with it, and he threw like accents there that were not there. I don't think, and it just wasn't wasn't good. I was batting a thousand before that. Um, t- tell us about Benedict from Arizona. I think was the number one overall seed going into this year's college tournament. What what do people need to know? Yeah, I mean, Matherin, he's a he's a really, really explosive kind of run and jump. I, not necessarily run. No, he's pretty quick. He's pretty quick run and jump athlete. Um, the one thing I will say is he's he was listed throughout the season at 6'7", 
And I think people get some like anchoring bias to that height. At the combine, he measured six four and a half without shoes. Mm. And I think he kind of plays a little small, in my opinion. I wasn't as big on Matherin as most were. He's a really good shooter off movement. So, I mean, not necessarily you're talking, they're not talking like Clay, but on that like catch, set, shoot, like maybe, you know, Clay is shooting off pure movement, Davis Bertons or something where he's, you know, if he gets that like second to set, he can fire. Matherin's the same way. And he's really good on like contested shots and such. He's got a long wingspan. He's really good in transition. He's really good on cuts. The big question for me with Matherin that held me a little bit lower is his handle isn't really at that level. And he showed nice passing flashes, which mainly came out of the PNR, but he's not really good at getting shots out of the PNR. So it's like, I'm not sold that an NBA team is going to find success giving him pick and roll reps because that's where his best passing comes, but his best scoring comes without the ball. It's kind of like you're limiting him a bit by giving him the ball. Whereas when he's moving off ball, he's a lot more valuable. And then for the three and D archetype, he's just not a good defender. He's just outright a bad defender at this point. He has the physical tools to get there, but he's just not there yet. Interesting. So I, so it sounds like he's kind of like a movement shooter with a little hybrid potential in there. And then obviously trying to kind of tread water on defense. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, I think the, I think the projection, the idea is that he's going to become a good defender, like more than tread water. He's going to become a plus, but I think early on, he's not quite there yet. Got it. Um, at number seven, the Blazers to, I mean, just Kentucky legend. I mean, if he's, <laughs> that's how true. Many, how many, did he ever play a game at Kentucky? No. Yeah. Yeah. So technically out of Kentucky, um, Shaden Sharp, kind of another really interesting prospect. Wax poetic on him for, for everyone. Yeah. I mean, Shaden, Shaden's a really fun prospect. Um, so he kind of came out of nowhere where he's from Canada and he kind of lit up the AAU circuit in his last year and kind of, and kind of came out of nowhere to kind of let it. So for Shaden, he's just a phenomenal shooter off, you know, step backs and things of the like. Um, and then on top of that, he's just a phenomenal athlete. He has this very unique rim gravity almost where he's just such a good leaper. I mean, he's truly like one of the best ones. I've seen in my like three or so years of really grading draft stuff. And so, I mean, he, it's just like cuts, dunks, off ball shooting. I think he's, he's very good with pull up jumpers at this point. He's good at creating like space off of step backs, but he kind of struggles to get to the rim when he's handling the ball. And his finishing is good, but he kind of, again, it's kind of like Mathurin where he's a little bit limited almost by having the ball in his hands. How do you feel about him landing in Portland where, in my head, I immediately think of Anthony Simons on a team that it looks like is positioning itself to, again, if they're healthy, be more competitive. And so then you bring this young juice kind of off the bench and you can develop him that way. I mean, how do you feel about that trajectory, keeping in mind that, you know, are we, I guess I should ask you, do you expect him to get decent minutes in year one? And then how do you feel about that going forward in year two and year three, where it's like, it's a totally different environment than going to Houston and almost playing like pick up ball, whoever can get your reps and minutes, go out there and show your skill. I think it's really good. I think the structure is going to be really nice for Shaden. And I think like, especially when looking at that type of player where they're better without the ball in their hands, being able to play next to Dane, being able to play next to Ant Simons, being able to play next to Jeremy Grant to an extent is really helpful. And I think Shaden's got that level of kind of athleticism. And I think defensively, he gets a lot of uh, kind of hate for his defense. And I do think, you know, I mean, he's an 18-year-old, like AAU ball. There's not really, outside of maybe bigs, like no one's really usually a good defender. But I will say 
he's a really good communicator and I think he put he tries. And I think his leaping makes him really impactful as a rebounder and a little bit as a second side room protector. Yeah, and I think that communication and awareness piece, at least to me, um, we'll see what happens. It makes me feel like there's a nice floor yeah. defensively, right? Because if you've got if you've got effort and you've got buy-in and you've got awareness and attention, um, even if there are other problems that come, you're probably going to be able to play in a decently high defensive unit once you kind of get up to speed and build your body up and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was an interesting kind of juxtaposition where Matherin went one pick before Shaden when they're both kind of off-ball wingy shooters that are pretty athletic because I kind of looked at them and I'm like, Shaden's a little bit bigger. He's a better pull-up shooter than Matherin and he's younger. And I think there's a lot more there defensively. So I was a bit, I was a bit confused because they seemed like really similar players, and I felt like Shaden was probably a solid bit better. But I guess Mathurin's more proven because he's done it at the college level. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or twenty four seven in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So uh, another interesting pick at the eighth slot for the Pelicans because we didn't get to see him play in college either from the G League Ignite, Dyson Daniels. Um, and I think, did you do a video on Dyson Daniels? I did do a video on yeah, Dyson. Yeah, so uh, the floor is yours. What what should we know about Dyson Daniels? I mean, well, the first thing I'll start off with is I was probably towards the higher end. I had Dyson as my fourth rated prospect, which I know is kind of controversial, but I was a very big fan of his. And I think I tweeted I tweeted something out while I was thinking about Dyson and doing all this stuff. I made some off tweet that I didn't really think about a ton because I didn't think it would happen. I was like, wow, the Pelicans should really trade <laughs> up and do whatever they could to get Dyson because you kind of and i was like uh, i was like i would be willing to trade multiple picks to move up a couple spots to get dyson and he just fell into their laps so i mean i would this is probably the best context for him to land into as a kind of six seven guard who had a growth spurt mid-season he grew up he's like six eight in shoes at this point with like a six eleven wingspan i think he's a very underrated athlete for how good he is he was able to get by people and i think there's you know, people fall into this trap where they're kind of grading prospects off of their kind of pure handle and their ability to get to spots. Whereas Dyson doesn't have the tightest handle and his moves aren't the cleanest, but he always gets where he wants to go. And that mm. means a lot. I think you look at a guy like Chris Middleton, where they don't have like the best handle per se, but they can get where they want to be and get to their spots. You use you use your body. Um, you know, you you kind of have an economy of how you go about it. Um, yeah, it's, it's craft, it's tempo, it's things like that. Why specifically New Orleans? What, what about that fit was so intriguing? Well, I mean, I think just looking at their, the way they can line up, just getting, especially like as in terms of perimeter defense, I think Dyson's maybe the best point of attack defender in the class. Um, not his kind of current on ball stuff. He needs a bit of technique improvement. However, his like, uh, intelligence, the angles he takes, his reaction times, and his physical tools to recover are phenomenal. He's the type of guy where, yeah, maybe a certain player can get past him, but he's going to be right there closing down on their space and recovering to get in front of them. And that's kind of almost more valuable in a sense, because some players, especially those top end players, you can't really stop them. But someone who's athletic enough to recover and keep pressuring them, that means a lot. And I think like as he continues to grow, getting a 6-7 perimeter defender who's probably going to be able to guard one through four 
and offers you offensively just a really smart ball mover. He's great in transition. He gets to spots. And I think the biggest thing with Dyson was his floater. That was his go-to thing. He took like two and a half to three floaters a game and converted at 55.5% at the G League. So, I mean, truly elite with that. And the one big thing I'd look to with the floater is there's a lot of low-hanging fruit for easy development. He likes trying to put defenders in jail. Um, so when he, where, where he gets, where he yeah, gets, gets him on the back him. hip, right? Yep. So when he went downhill left, he would go to this spin and he spins back inside and that opened up space. If he goes left and spins back, his right hand is opened up with space to get that floater off, right? So when he went downhill right, he wanted to, if he spins, he doesn't get space with his right. So he can't get to the floater. So he would try and put defenders in jail. But he doesn't necessarily have that core strength yet because he's still only 18 and he just went through a growth spurt. So he's a bit lankier than he should be, right? Um, so if he can get to the point where he adds that weight and he can go down right and get people in jail and keep them on the left hip if he's coming off a screen to the right, right? Because they're going to be following over. They'll be on the left hip. That gives him space to get the floater off going right. And I think that unlocks a ton for him offensively because that's going to be his go-to weapon at the NBA level. So it sounds like one of the reasons you kind of had him at the top of that next tier of players is you are really desc- I mean I know we're playing draft bingo here at this point but you're really describing the big two-way wing who can give you some offensive juice defend switch guard multiple positions um that seems to be where you think he's headed yeah. uh, you know in 5 years or something Yeah and and of course I didn't put this one in but he is also a phenomenal passer like great oh. vision finds all the reads. He's execution's phenomenal. He'll catch defenses sleeping and find some random hole like from half court, you know. So he just kind of does. He gives you everything. How could you leave that out with me, Chip? I, I, I'm I feel, sorry. I feel I'm wounded sorry. that you saved the passing until the end. Um, a couple more in this tier, and then we'll kind of move faster as we as we go through the rest of the first round. But the Spurs took Jeremy Sohan from Baylor, another really interesting prospect. Um, I think you also like him as well. So talk about what San Antonio... I mean, anytime San Antonio drafts anybody, I feel like for like 15 years, the, the draft nerds have been like, ah, he's going to the Spurs. There's What, what is the development track? Um, so tell us about Sohan. Yeah, I mean, so the, the first thing with Sohan, which makes the Spurs fit so good, is he's one of those guys where it's like, if he can shoot, he'll be really valuable. Um, and he currently cannot really shoot. <laughs> However, his organization does have a reasonably positive track record of developing players shooting. Maybe if we've, I don't yeah. know if you've heard this one before, but the Spurs yeah. can kind of do that pretty well. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah. Um, so the shooting right now is the question mark. It is, I, I think it's a skill that depending on where the player is athletically, their nervous system, like, of course, some, some people are just not going to be able to shoot ultimately, but it's a skill that you can actually, we've seen grow a lot over the years, especially spot up shooting, especially spot up shooting from the corner, or if you don't have to worry about release speed or things like that. Whereas other skills, um, like that we might think of as related to feel or even ball handling can be a skill that's really hard to develop long term. So, you know, you understand why, like, hey, if shooting is the question mark and we can fill that in, it's extremely enticing because in his case, Chip, what are all the other things that are already there or potentially there to be higher end talents in the league? Yeah, I mean, when you talk of, about like intelligence and like feel for the game, he's towards the top end of that list. He's just an incredibly smart player. Um, he's maybe like 6'8", 230 at uh, 19 years old. So, I mean, he's a, a really big dude. 
And Baylor, he was kind of the do-everything guy. They had a lot of holes in their roster. So, I mean, sometimes he was guarding the point of attack, defending pick and roll is kind of on point guards, really. And he's good at getting over screens at his size, which is like phenomenal to see. He's really good at like taking great angles. He gets his body in the way he walls off drives super well. He also can be impactful at the rim because he's so tall. He's got longer arms. He's not like a, I think the looking at his kind of movement patterns, he fits in that kind of like Grant Williams, Draymond Green, JaVale McGee of like, he gets where he wants to go and he's like fluid, but it's very awkward looking. And like, he looks a bit awkward when he's moving, but he gets where he wants to be and he's really smart. So he knows where he needs to be. And he's also strong, right? So, I mean, that's kind of the thing with him. So, I mean, he's just like super smart, switchable defender. He moves the ball well. He attacks closeouts. He cuts well. Um, and I think he, he changes directions really well for his size, which is like kind of the outlier thing. He backpedals well. He can move left and right, like laterally well. And then he's just like super intelligent, big, young, moves the ball, plays defense. He's got good technique on and off ball. He moves well without the ball. He just can't really shoot. And his handle is a bit limited. But in terms of just getting a defensive weapon at the forward spot, that's where Sohan kind of lies. Yeah. So, I mean, I was wondering where you were going when you connected Grant, Draymond Green, and JaVale McGee together. Uh, but it sounds like it sounds like the promise for him is that we have an all-defensive level player who can then do all these other nice things on the court. And, oh, my goodness, if his shooting comes in, now we're talking about something potentially special. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that. Okay. Sounds good. Um, next up, the Wizards at number 10 took Johnny Davis from Wisconsin. Um, he, you know, he speaks to me more because when you see Johnny Davis, you're like, oh, there's a, there's a guy from 2005 who's a really great college basketball player who knows how to do awesome things on the court. Um, how do you feel about him? Sort of what, what can we expect out of the gate? Yeah. I mean, Johnny for me was, uh, one of those guys who I had not like top I guess for them, for most of the top 11, for me, it's the top nine. Johnny was in that group for me. Um, so, I mean, the, the first thing to keep in mind, he's a, he's a 6'5 guard. He was a sophomore, so he's 20 years old. He's pretty strong. He has, I think, like a 6'8 and a half wingspan. So, it's kind of like mediocre, I guess you could say. So, the first thing that's like needs to be stated with Johnny, he scored about 20 points per game in college this season and also was one of the most impactful defenders in the country. He's like an extremely high motor scorer and defender. And he also kind of involuntarily played with the Jordan rules this year. Um, his team had, I think, like him and one other guy that could shoot the ball. Um, and I think he was one of five players on the team that averaged more than three points per game. Um, so it <laughs> literally three points per game. Yeah. Yeah. Like actually genuinely three. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's, <laughs> he was often playing with like offensive non-factors, like two on the court at most times. So he was operating in really tight windows. He doesn't have like the best handle and he's more of a functional athlete than like an elite athlete, but he was really good at getting to the rim regardless. And he's also good at getting to his spots and using his body to kind of create space. But again, he's, he kind of falls in that group where it's someone who is going to not create the most space and wants to take jump shots. So you're going to have to be okay with him taking contested jumpers for him to hit those like highest upper tier outcomes. Hmm. Um, with players like this, I'm always curious on going to a team like the Wizards. What do you expect for his minutes load out of the gate as a rookie? Are we talking about someone who you see starting potentially or still big minutes off the bench? Kind of where do you think he is stepping on the court right away? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be interesting to see, right, how, with how the Wizards line up, because I feel like as it currently stands, you've got like Bradley Beal's going to do the whole Twitter thing where he's like, I don't know if I'm going to go back. I don't know. And so you got Bradley Beal there, of course. You're going to have Kristaps Porzingis most games, you would hope. Um, Kyle Kuzma, maybe KCP. I think Johnny Davis could and maybe should start for them. But I could also see him coming off as a six man. I think he's probably going to win himself a starting spot with how hard he just works because he is truly like a very, very, very hard worker. Cool. That's a that's a that's a great endorsement. Um, speaking of phenomenal endorsements, the New York Knicks had the eleventh pick and they traded it to Oklahoma City. Um, we, we, round two of Ben pronounces names: Usman Jang. Usman Jang, yeah. Usman Jang, I that was close enough. I think you're close yes, to the, the most. Jeopardy, the Jeopardy uh, board is going to count that one for me. Um, this is a player that I feel like I know nothing about pre-draft. I think he played in New Zealand, right? Yeah. What's What's the story with him? Yeah, I mean, and uh, and, and not only that, but I mean, going to the to the Thunder, the Thunder then turned around at twelve and took Jalen Williams, right? Yes, they did. Okay, so we've got we've got let's let's try to put all this thunder stuff together um, because they basically ended up with back to back players and am I, am I losing my mind? Did they did they who did they draft at thirty four? Uh, they drafted Jalen Williams. Okay, so who did they draft at twelve? Jalen Williams. <laughs> um, Chip, I'm just gonna please have you explain this to people and uh, kind of help everyone understand in the. OKC, Sam Presti, mm-hmm. fever dream process, how these guys fit in mm-hmm. to Jalen Williams. Yeah, man, Usman. Um, I think you actually are more familiar with Usman than you think. He's the 6'10 ball handler that I kept posting about in the Slack from uh, the MBL. So I, yeah, I think you've seen a little, a tiny bit. Um, so Usman was one of my favorite prospects this year, watching him grow. Um, he is kind of a, <laughs> he's a 6'10 ball handler. Um, shout out to the Thunder, always draft ball handlers. Um, he's a really, really smart passer. He makes good reads out of the pick and roll. Um, he's really thin, not like Chet level of thin. He's maybe like, he put on a lot of weight throughout the season. He's maybe like 205, 210 at 6'10. So he's pretty thin, but not like egregiously thin. Um, so the big thing with Usman, uh, was coming into this year, he had played in France before because he's French. Um, he shot maybe 35% from the field and like 28% from three in France. And then he came to Australia and I think for the first half of the season shot maybe like 17% from the field and like 12% from three and averaged like four points a game, which was not good. And then in the second half of the season, that's not good. No, he came, he was out for a while, came back and all of a sudden became the New Zealand breakers best player. He was averaging, I think around like 13 points. He shot 55% on twos, 36% 36% on threes. The efficiency like completely changed. So he had just a massive metamorphosis kind of growth in the middle of the season in terms of getting his shots off and making his shots. And he just got so much better throughout the season. Coming into the year, he was like a lottery consideration. Then first half of the season, he almost played himself out of the draft to the point where people thought he wasn't going to enter. And then second half of the season, he played himself back in. So, I mean, it's another Sam Presti's just drafting a super tall ball handler and trying to develop what he can. He's good at getting to pull up jumpers. He's, I think his shots a lot better than the numbers would suggest. And defensively, he did a couple of really nice things as the low man. I think my biggest concern with Usman is coming into the year, there was this really good passing and he was pretty good at staying in front of guys in the perimeter. And then the scoring came in and all of a sudden he was a much more playable player. And it was like he scored well and the off-ball defense was good, but the passing and the on-ball defense is gone. 
So it's like trying to put all of that together at once. But I mean, Thunder are a pretty good place to get reps, even if you're not going to be a positive player. And he's he's 19 years old. Yes, right? he is 19. Yeah. Um, okay. So the Thunder have Chet. Yep. The Thunder have him. Yep. The Thunder have the Jalen Williamses. Yes. Um, one of whom I assume you're you're much higher on than the other. There's the Jalen Williams from Santa, Santa Clara. Clara that they took at 12, and then the other Jalen Williams with the Y from Arkansas. From Arkansas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so J- both of them are a bit weird for me. Um, so Jalen Williams was a bit overlooked this season because he was a junior at Santa Clara, not the biggest school. He got a little bit of press because he got to play against Chet. So those games kind of popped up and people watched. Um, but then I think towards the end of the season, he started picking up a lot of steam where his stats, his numbers looked pretty good. Um, and then he went to the combine and he measured with a plus nine and three quarter inch wingspan, which oh, uh, that'll, that'll do it. caught people's yeah. attention. So all of a sudden he became a much higher um, kind of higher known prospect. He got invited to the green room. So it seemed like he was going to go top 20, ended up going 12, which was really surprising. I did not think his range was open to that. Um, so he, his shot was good and his indicators are really good, but it was low volume, which is a bit concerning. And then he's not really a very good athlete. In my opinion, he's a really smart pick and roll player. He plays a lot of good pace. He uses change of direction well, and he's a really good passer out of the pick and roll. And when he gets to his spots, he makes shots um, he uses his length really well to finish the rim. He was good with floaters in the mid-range, really good floater game. And then he hit perimeter shots, but usually they're mainly off the catch, not off the dribble. And then defensively, I just think he's downright problematic. He's like mm. He really struggles, and that's going to be the interesting to see, thing to see if OKC can kind of develop. So I guess what's interesting is like you would you would potentially hear that kind of description about a younger player mm-hmm. and then you're saying well there's something boom or bust or they see some sliver that they think can really develop or grow but he's kind of an older player so w- what do you think it is that ultimately moved him all the way up to 12 i think it was the wingspan and the fact that he can handle the ball and he has like he projects well as someone that can shoot uh do you i guess here's a question we could have asked an hour ago um do you think the Thunder kind of won the night, had the, like, you look at it, you're like, man, I feel the best about their draft, or are you sticking with the Grizzlies, or we talked about the Magic with Bunkero. I know I know the Magic, we, we didn't get to talk about it, feel free to now. They also took one of your favorite players um, at the top of the second round in Caleb Houston. Who are kind of your, your big winners from your vantage point last night? Uh, I think there were three teams that really jump out to me as big winners. I do like what the Magic did. I think they, they did a phenomenal job. I guess they would maybe also be in the winner category. I really like Caleb Houston. Um, he played on that Montverde team with Cade and Scotty and Dayron and Moses Moody. Um, what a weak, what a weak high school team. Yeah, of that course. Was. Uh, only port, you know, only six four or seven first NBA. round picks. Caleb Houston <laughs> slipped to thirty two. Um, yeah, embarrassing. Yeah, truly. Um, no, so I mean, Caleb was just a weird one for me, where he's like six eight, smart player, passes the ball, can shoot, and. When he was a complimentary player at Montverde, he was phenomenal. He ended up working all the way up to being the sixth-ranked player in his high school class. Um, then at FIBA with Team Canada, they wanted him to be like the guy running the offense, and he sucked at it. And then at Michigan, they wanted him to be the guy and run the offense, and he sucked at it. But that's <laughs> not what he's going to do in the NBA, so why do we care? He was really elite when he was a complimentary player, and you're drafting him to be a complimentary player. So I'm a bit confused as to why people are like, completely just out on him because he didn't do well in a role that he's not actually going to do with the NBA. 
But but this gets back to the philosophical thing that I think we started with, which is that um, you are, and I, I think I'm fairly sympathetic to it, you are probably higher on getting complimentary pieces at a certain point in the draft than other people who I think historically have been looking to still swing and try to hit home runs, whether it's the 10th position, the 14th position, the 21st position in the yeah. draft. And it's like, if you have a guy who you think can be a really good that Danny Green role for like 10 or 15 years you're that's that's the way to win that part of the draft yeah I think that transitions nicely into who my favorite draft probably was the Memphis Grizzlies um so the Grizzlies traded up to number 19 to pick there they I think they traded a 22 and maybe a future pick I think there was two oh 22 and I don't know they traded two picks um to mm-hmm. move up to 19 and they took Jake LaRavia out of Wake Forest who was he's 20 years old um, he's a six nine kind of dorky looking white dude. He's about two forty, but he's really good at staying in front of his man. He's pretty much the plug and play Kyle Anderson replacement. Um, his advanced numbers at Wake Forest in a power conference as a twenty year old at six nine are really what carry him. He had a sixty five true shooting percentage, twenty assist percentage, a point five three FTR, uh, two point what is 2.7 steal percentage, three block percentage. He kind of just does, he's like, he's like average to above average at pretty much everything. And he's really smart and he's big. The the brown belt of, of many categories. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then um, additionally at 23, they picked up David Roddy, who I'm, I'm familiar with because uh, I think it might have been the opening game of the NCAA tournament. J. Kyle Mann from The Ringer just starts furiously texting me. And he's like, you literally have to go watch David Roddy play. He's he's one of my favorite college players. Um, he's he's kind of, yeah, I'll, I'll let you tell people sort of what Roddy is. But another really interesting kind of, uh, what is he, like 6'6", six, six, plays bigger than he is, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so Rowdy's an interesting one because he was six, he's like 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, like you said. Um, he, to be honest, like, to be 100% like open, transparent, he was fat. He was just really overweight, um, really large. Lost a ton of weight this year and really kind of legitimized himself because he lost all the weight and the shot came together and that kind of changed him. So at Colorado State, Mountain West was one of the best mid-major conferences. I think they sent like five teams to the tournament this year, including his Colorado State team. He averaged 19 points, uh, seven and a half rebounds, three assists, a little over a steal, and a little over a block a game. Super efficient scoring from all three levels. Um, he's kind of that maybe like Joe Ingles, where he's playing with a lot of pace and like kind of composure as like a pick and roll player. He does that really well. He handles the ball pretty well. Smart decision maker and passer. He shoots well. He gets to the basket well. Um, you know, and he's he's a solid defender as well. So I think for me, it's just another like this is a plug and play, pretty good player. He's another guy at a first round grade on. So I, I think like again, it's just a plug and play, good, useful player like the Grizzlies love doing. Um, is that does that offset the loss of D'Anthony Melton for you? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it can. I, I'm a really big D'Anthony Melton fan as well. Yeah, yeah me too, yeah. But I also think Roddy's going to be a really good player, and I think there's just they have so many good players, you know. You can only play so many of them. Um, you know what does offset the, the D'Anthony Melton thing? My favorite player in the whole draft. Favorite player in the whole draft? My favorite player in the whole draft, Vince Williams Jr. from Virginia Commonwealth University, was drafted number 47 by the Memphis Grizzlies. Wow. 
This is why Chip really wanted to do the podcast today, so he could find a way to get to number 47. Vince Williams Jr. from VCU. Why do you love him so much? Well, he's he's a bit of a... He gets mis- a bit misrepresented, I think. So here's the first thing I would say with um, Vince, right? Um, we look again at that Bartorvik database. Here's a list of players that are at least 6'5", right? Um, attempted nine threes per 100 possessions. They hit them at a 35% or better rate. Um, they had a steal percentage greater than two and a half, a block percentage greater than three, and an assist percentage greater than 15. So they're block, steals, assists, and shooting threes. They're doing good things mm-hmm. on the court. Um, five players have done that across an entire college season. They are Clay Thompson, Courtney Lee, Danny Green, Paul George, and Vince Williams Jr. Um, I've never heard of any of those. Yeah, they're players, they're they're like they? kind of deep cuts, but I tr- trust me, they're good. I'll show you some highlights maybe later. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, Vince, for me, just like he was 72nd, I think, on the consensus major media. 72nd on that and then 22nd on your board. Yes, I I did think he was a first round pick. I think he's going to be good. So he isn't necessarily the best like movement wise. He's athletic enough. He's functionally athletic. He's six. But here's the thing. He's like six, four and a half in socks with a seven foot wingspan. And he shoots 40% from three on a ton of attempts. So when you can get a knockdown shooter who's like smart. He's strong, so he can kind of guard up in a sense. I think he can kind of play at the three, and he can probably guard threes and fours. I think generally you're going to want him off ball kind of as like a weak side guy, a roamer, a guy who can have impact, you know, doubling and playing kind of intelligently. And then he's just a phenomenal shooter and passer, and he finishes well at the rim. He's great attacking closeouts. I think he's just a useful player that helps good, good basketball be played. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now we reach the point that um, I think probably like 27% of the draft Knicks out there in the audience listening have been waiting for, and that is the 13th pick in the draft, Jalen Duran. Um, Chip is raising his hands over his head in celebration. I think you had him really high on your board as well. He, he, ends, up, he ends up in Detroit, so the Pistons... Um, it's interesting that you don't think the Pistons were were one of the winners. Oh, I do. Of this night. Oh, okay. They're right. in my top I three. Thought, okay, they're in the top three. I just my, I can't listen anymore. Chip, the season's over. I mean, my brain barely works. Um, wh- what is it about Duran that you think caused the slide a little bit, if you will? I feel like he went. You know, people expected him to go a little bit higher. And then, why do you like him so much? Um, as for why he slid, I don't know. I don't have a reason. Um, why I like him so much, I can work on that. So I think earlier you came up with that Robert, Robert Williams comp. I think that's kind of where you're looking at with Duran. So Duran is 18 years old. He's the youngest player in the class. He won't turn 19 until late November. <clears throat> despite that, despite the fact that he should be a high school senior, he is 6'9", 240, um, built like a Greek god. The dude is just yeah. built. Yeah huge seven foot five wingspan he gets off the floor super easily great like double jumping second leap is phenomenal blocked a ton of shots 
I think SMU was like a top 50 Ken Palm team. He put 20 and 20 up on them. Um, just super impactful, really smart passer, great roller, um, you know, connects play well, makes good decisions. He has good touch. Um, shot a little bit in AAU, but not really in college, and I wouldn't really project it, but it's there. Um, and also just defensively as like a secondary rim protecting guy, just like phenomenal elite level S tier defensive tool, yeah. like useful yeah. player, just really he, good. Not, not only those measurements, but just a guy that from what I've seen just jumps off the screen athletically, just like a man amongst boys kind of athlete. <laughs> I sh- we should also remind people that uh, that Robert Williams archetype, and there's plenty of other players that have succeeded. I mean, Rudy Gobert, for one, is a similar kind of archetype in the league that's been really successful. But Gobert was the 27th pick in the draft. Rob Williams, he may have been 27, but he was late, late first round off the top of my head. Um, so, you know, maybe that's part of the slide is that sometimes there just isn't the same allure with those players potentially, or there's more question marks about offense or whatever. But um, I, I think it's a a very impactful archetype if you can actually hit and and be successful at this level. Yeah, and when you look at Cade needing, he really loves throwing lobs. He likes lob targets. This guy's pretty good at that. He uh, he can he has got a very big catch radius, and he's very good at uh, throwing the ball in the hoop. Yeah, one of the so it's interesting because one of the things that we talked about, and you specifically pointed out in our Cade William uh, Cade Cunningham scout, is that he didn't have a lob threat. Um, and then they traded for Marvin Bagley and it kind of unlocked a little bit more offensively because of that. And then I talked about asking him to play more of that heliocentric, like you have the ball all the time and they get someone else who can help and slide next to him that he never really has played with either. So it's, it's really interesting kind of development for the Pistons. And I makes sense to me why you kind of have them as one of the winners of the night. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it, it came out that they, there were reports from the Pistons that if Jaden Ivey was not there at five, they were going to take Jalen Dern at five. That was like, the, so they, they thought Ivey was going to be gone and they were going to get Dern. So they get both of them. Yes, guys, they got both basically. of them. Yeah. Um, all right. When does the lottery technically end? I think, is that it? Is it 13? It's I technically to do- 14. 14. So we have one more lottery guy. I wanted to kind of do all the all the deep dives on the lottery guys, and then we can get a few more thoughts on other picks that you like or a few more. I know you want to spend a lot of time talking about how much you love the Chicago Bulls draft. That's true. Um, so we'll, we'll save that. Uh, for, Maybe for another for episode. <laughs> yeah, we'll have a whole episode on that. Um, the Cavs took from Kansas uh, athletic uh, kind of forward. Um, Oh, don't make me say it. Ochai Egbaji. Ochai Ochai Egbaji. Yep. Yeah. Um, So Ochai, 22 years old, led Kansas to the national title, uh, shot 42% from three. He knocks down threes. He's super athletic, electric in transition, cuts well. There's some concerns with him. I think he measured like 6'5 without shoes. So he's a little small for like a forward, but he's really strong and athletic. So I think that just plays up and doesn't... I think people maybe zone in on the height a little bit too much. And then defensively, obviously, he's got pretty good technique on ball, super athletic, got good size. He's a 3 and D player, really good cutting, really good in transition, going to knock down threes and space the four is exactly what they needed. There's maybe not a ton of upside past that, but I mean, you have the 14th pick, you got exactly what you needed as Cleveland. So I think it's just like cut and dry, good pick, yep, move on kind of thing, right? So is this is this kind of like more in that, in terms of the Cavs, where they are? We know the Cavs 
are a, a growing, developing team that had a great year. Um, is this like another Dean Wade kind of? We get a defender, we get a we get a physical three, um, and if we can get development beyond that as someone who can shoot or attack closeouts or whatever, it's a win. Is that is that kind of the fit you'd expect from him in terms of the minutes he's going to get? I yeah, I mean, I think he might take a Coro's minutes just because he's like he's he's already ready to shoot. He shot forty two percent this year, so he's already there as a shooter. Um, I think this was them, you know, with Dean Wade and like Lamar Stevens, they've been able to get a lot of value out of guys that weren't like super high prospects. This was getting to choose the premier role player. They got the chance to take the best role player instead of getting the most out of one of the lesser role playing prospects. They got the best role playing prospect here. Cool. Um, Let's talk about the Duke guys because they come up next and then Wendell Moore is also at 26. So the Hornets get... Mark Williams at 15. Um, he's Duke big man. They get AJ Griffin. Um, that is the son of Adrian Griffin for those historians out there, Celtics and Mavs and Southpaw, great defensive player on ball. He goes 16 to Atlanta. And then what did I say? The Mavs took uh, Wendell Moore Jr. I think at, that got traded. That did get traded. Thank you. That got traded to Minnesota. So the Timberwolves end up with him. Um, who who do you like sort of who do you think is going to play right away out of these duke guys um yeah it's it's an interesting bunch um so i mean aj griffin was one where i'll be like fully transparent i kind of i i spent a lot of time evaling him and i kind of came to the conclusion that he's had a really bad injury history and his a lot of his athleticism is kind of just not there anymore from when he was you know 16 17 he basically missed two entire years he did not play for two years before coming to Duke. And then in the preseason, he hurt his knee. So he was rehabbing a knee injury on a minutes restriction for most of the year. So without seeing the medical records and having that, you know, expertise and watching him move in workouts, it's a little hard to say. However, he was still in that top nine for me just because he is a very good ball handler, or at least, you know, the athleticism limits it a bit now, but he's got good moves and he was really good at chaining them into jumpers. And he's maybe the best shooting prospect since like Steph Curry. He is like truly a phenomenal shooter. We talked about with Keegan where he had that super efficient profile of like scoring. Well, um, AJ Griffin basically had the same thing as a profile of shooting. Um, he shot Just like all top percentiles. Yeah. 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 93rd percent spot ups, 100% off cuts, 99% off screens, 92% PNR ball handler, 90 off handoffs, 98 off isolation. So again, just like phenomenal shooter shot 45% on like over 150 attempts from three at Duke. Um, his floater percentage is good. He kind of struggles getting to the rim because there's athleticism stuff that's just kind of gone. And that's going to be the big thing for AJ Griffin. When we look back on this draft, you know, we mentioned earlier, there's usually like one all-star in that 11 to 20 range. Those two guys, Jalen Duran and AJ Griffin, those are the guys that I think have that all-star potential in that 11 to 20 range where it wouldn't really be a big shock. He, AJ Griffin fell to 16 because he was hurt. He did not, he's not the 16th best prospect. He's better than that. Yeah, I think the Twitter consensus had him in that top 12, somewhere around six, uh, if you average all of the NBA Twitter um, draft boards. And, you know, great touch, great shooter, didn't necessarily get the uh, role at Duke that would accentuate all of those skills. I mean, put a little more color on, you know, your your we said no comps and now Steph Curry has come into the conversation. Like, I think the thing about Griffin that you've talked about that jumps out to me is how wide his shooting base is. 
do you do you see him as someone with all of that shooting skill and touch and potentially the hand-eye coordination required to do that? Do you see him as someone who can be just a ridiculous kind of movement shooter all over the court threat? Or is this a spot up? Is this off the dribble? Add just a little bit more about what you think that development could look like. Yeah, sure. I think it can be... I think it can be, he's good at organizing his base in air. So I think he can be that like movement shooter, not even maybe off movement, like a pure movement shooter where he's like moving while setting up. Right. Um, he's very good on step backs. He's creates a lot of space with them and he's comfortable shooting off of them. So it's going to be off the dribble stuff. He can create his own shot. He's good at hitting shots in the mid range and getting the spots there. Um, great on catch and shoot stuff, of course, because that's, you know, easy for him. Right. So I think in terms of like off ball shooting, creating his own shot, knocking down shots when Trey creates things for him, it's like any, generally any type of shooting, shooting, uh, he's comfortable going pick and roll. He goes around the screen. If they go under, he's going to pull up and it's probably going to go in every time. So, I mean, it's, it's a diverse shot profile. So he's definitely, uh, of the three Duke guys, the, the one you're highest on. Oh yeah. But not even close. Yeah. Um, Number 17, the Rockets took another guy you did a video on, Tari Eason. Um, and again, going into the Houston environment where it's just like we've got a lot, lot of young developing players, do you expect him to get minutes? And kind of what what is the potential there for him, do you think? Yeah, I mean, Tari's an interesting one. I was probably a bit lower than a lot of people, but I get why they were really high. So he is, I think, like six six and a half without shoes. So he's probably around like six seven ish um, And super long arms. I think he's like a seven, three wingspan. Um, he's just an athletic destroyer just runs through people. Um, he had 32% usage off the bench at LSU, just running through people in transition, just getting to the basket. Um, he had a block percentage of 6.2 and a steal percentage of 4.5. Whoa. Yeah. So yeah, he's that's monstrous. Yeah. He's just a, a, a phenomenal athlete. He's pretty smart, especially as a defensive decision maker. I think defensively, he's just going to be probably the Rockets' best defense. Maybe Jay Sean, probably the Rockets' second best defender from day one. Well, well, is he is he similar in a sense functionally as an NBA player coming in as a as a young player, where it's like um, Tate was someone who popped in my head as you were describing this, where he's like, okay, we know we're going to get uh, an athletic, diverse, switchy defender right away and then we take what we can kind of on offense yeah that that kind of thing yeah Yeah. he is shot he shot well and from the to be fair from the free throw line he shot 80 percent on a very high volume this year at with that long arm tall that's 80 percent in college on that volume i think it was 188 total shots made 151 that's like really outlier he shot 36 percent from three it got a lot better as the season went on to put this in a little bit of context, he shot 57% from the free throw line and 24% from three the year before. And there was definitely changes to his form. The concern for me is he's, so he has these really long arms. He's loading his shot on his right shoulder, like here. So hmm. that's a bit wonky, but it, I feel like it might lean more towards the if it goes in, who cares kind of category. But I don't think he'll be like a high volume shooter. But I do think there's a chance he could be 36% as a rookie on like kind of smaller volume. So um, I think there's a couple more players I want to discuss, whether they went in the rest of the first, the sort of end part of the first round or the second round. Um, One of them is this 20th pick where San Antonio took Malachi Branham. Did I get that name right? Yes, you did. Okay. I I mean, I just 
just struggling to stay alive here. Um, I was joking with Chip before we recorded that it's like more more Madden names ever than, than in the past coming down the pike. Um, Malachi Branham, he was 12th on your board and San Antonio nabs him at, at 20. What is it that you like about him that has you kind of higher on him? Yeah, I mean, Malachi Branham, um, he kind of came out of nowhere. He was a really interesting one this year because he... Um, he was a freshman. He went to St. Vincent, St. Mary's, the same high school as LeBron, um, went to Ohio State. He was a pretty highly rated recruit, but he was not supposed to be a one and done. And he came out as a freshman this year just because of how he kind of at the beginning of the year came off the bench and was kind of just more of a complimentary player. And then he kind of became like the person running their offense by the end of the year, their go to scorer. So the interesting thing with Branham that kind of stands out is the shot diet he took. So if you look for, I think it's like, uh, high major freshman, Power 5 conference, plays as a freshman. Um, his shot profile is really similar to a lot of top picks. So, yeah, if you look at kind of high major, taking enough threes, um, getting a bunch of mid-range attempts up as freshman, you get a lot of guys like, I think, um, hold up, wait, pulls. Yeah, you get like RJ Barrett, Jamal Murray, D'Angelo Russell, Cam Thomas, Jabari Parker, Malik Monk. Uh, Paolo Bancaro, Brandon Ingram, Andrew Wiggins. So he has that type of shot profile. And of all of them, he was the most efficient. So let me throw something out there. Um, when you describe, I haven't seen him play at all. Mm-hmm. And when you just, des- when you describe a player like that and he's a freshman and then he doesn't land in the lottery, doesn't land in the top 10, my immediate thought is there's something lacking physically that like almost turns teams off like his he doesn't have a plus nine wingspan he doesn't have a 40 inch vertical leap etc etc but you're also describing someone who like for lack of a better term knows how to play basketball yeah so Branham for the reason he probably didn't go very high is again he's one of those guys where he's good at using his body to create space and his handle is like solid but not phenomenal so he's taking a lot of contested shots so he's one of those ones where you're going to have to be okay with him taking contested mid-range jumpers. He was so efficient at it that it kind of seems fine. He shot, I think, about 70% at the rim, 45% in the mid-range, 43% from three, uh, 83% from the free throw line. So he was hyper-efficient across the board. Um, problem is, doesn't get to the rim a ton. And Ohio State was really good at sealing driving lanes for him that probably inflate his numbers there a bit. His three-point shot volume wasn't super high. And I think that's partially because he is really comfortable taking catch and shoots, but he doesn't like taking pull-ups, but he had the ball in his hand the whole time. So he didn't really get a ton of catch and shoot opportunities. And then defensively, he's just pretty bad, but he's a pretty good athlete. He's six, five for a guard. I think he has a six eleven wingspan. So he actually does have like the wingspan and kind of the physical tools to be a good defender, but he's very far from that at this point. And then he's not getting to the rim and taking threes. He's taking a bunch of mid range jumpers. So is it so, so, let me refine what I said then is, is the, do you think kind of the hesitancy as a high major freshman with big scoring numbers and all that is maybe more of, um, for lack of a better term here, a little hero ball kind of diet. A lot, a lot has to go through him, a lot of mid range, a lot of tough, tough shot making that doesn't necessarily translate. That's the interesting thing, because I think that's the way he was used at Ohio state, but I don't think that's the way he wants to play. Hmm. I think it was more like born out of necessity. Where interesting. it became that. So very interesting. And and of course going to the uh Spurs as well. Um your favorite team as a Bulls fan, the Milwaukee Bucks <laughs> took uh, here we go. Hopefully my last name challenge, Marjan Beauchamp. Yep. 
Okay. Um, he was another G, G League Ignite player. I think you are higher on him than most. He's kind of in that next tier of like 20-something players if we look at the NBA Twitter draft board. But you have him up at 13th right next to Malachi. Um, what is it about him that you like compared to everyone else? Um, yeah, I think the first thing with Marjan that comes up is like the age curve stuff. So he's 21. Um, so he's, he's a bit on the older side. Um, how, how do you, how do you feel about that philosophically? Cause I've, I've kind of gone back and forth on this over the years and now I'm back in the category of like, I'm kind of off it a little bit more because I, a uh, couple, couple drafts ago when the bridges came in and you had miles bridges and Mikhail, Mikhail bridges, I liked them both. But McHale being like so old, I was like, well, you have an aging curve thing and the aging curve thing is still real. But it's like if you're really good at basketball, you don't really feel that that much, especially over the course of a career. There's plenty of long, great careers that started at 21 or 22. So like, do we overthink that sometimes, do you think? Um, Maybe to an extent, but I think I think age curve matters. But I also think like if a player is just like Jake LaRavia is 20, I guess like Vince Williams, like 21 and a half. David Roddy is like 21 that Memphis dra- drafted. Memphis every year just dropped. Desmond Bain was like 22 when he come, came out, but he was good. He just it's another he's good already example, good Desmond at basketball, Bain. so it doesn't exactly, matter. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I think in terms of development, I think the age curve is important. However, Marjan is kind of an exception for me because he has a background that kind of explains why. Um, he had to move around high school. So he's from Yakima Valley, which is not Seattle. He's around Seattle-ish, but not in that area. He's Native American, so they were close to um, that kind of area. And so he had to move after his freshman season to play higher level of competition in high school. Then there was a mold problem in the house he was living in. So he had health effects from that. So he had to move again, um, won two state titles back to back, sophomore and junior during that period. Um, then he went to Dream City Christian in Arizona to play even higher level of competition, was phenomenal again. He was a consensus five-star recruit. And instead of going to college, despite having a ton of offers, he wanted to go work with an NBA strength and conditioning coach that was doing like a training program, right? Um, and then COVID came and that got canceled. Um, so then he had nothing to do. Um, so he, he said he got, he, he kind of was unsure what to do. He had to go back home. Um, and then he ended up getting an opportunity to play for the community college local to him with his friends because he wasn't sure if he was going to be eligible for D1 because of the amateur requirements. And he did this training thing that was like kind of, we aren't sure because it's untreaded waters. It's not a thing that happens a lot. Um, did phenomenal. He averaged like 40 points a game in community college. Uh, and then he ended up signing with the G League Ignite, averaged like 15 points and eight rebounds in the G League this season. Um, so Marjan, he's 21. He's a little bit older, but there's been a lot of stuff going on where he's never had a consistent situation. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, so Marjan's 6'6", really athletic, long. Um, he's a good, de- he's not the best on ball defender, but he's a really good off ball defender. He reads the game well and he creates a lot of havoc as an off ball defender. And his athleticism and length allows him to recover as an on ball defender. And obviously, uh, that's kind of one of the things teams feel a little bit better. Like every coach thinks, like, I can teach him how to play defense, right? So he's, he's solid on ball, very good off ball, great recovery tools. And then offensively, really, really good cutter. And elite finisher, he shot 70% on all shots in the paint in the G League, um, which is kind of absurd, especially at 6'6". Um, his touch on floaters is great. And then he also shot like over 45% on pull-up twos. So, I mean, there's a lot of positive indicators of shooting. And the community college season shot 40% from three. And in high school AAU stuff, 
Usually the average is around 27% and he shot 34% on high volume. So he was above average shooter for his level. And then he had took the year off between community college and G League. There's a lot of extenuating circumstances, but he's a really smart passer. He scores really well from, I think his three will come and he's very comfortable shooting. So he can score from all three levels, comfortable passer, really good athlete, moves well without the ball, tries really hard defensively, great in transition. I feel like he's a really, really good player, and he's going to be a very nice addition to the Bucks' wing rotation. So um, let's do this. Let's wrap, mm-hmm. and I will give you the floor mm-hmm. to. I think I know who you're going to who you're going to pick, but I will give you the floor to discuss any player who we haven't talked about first or second round um, that you you feel good about that you are high on that you think was a steal in last night's draft. Oh, I mean, the best possible circumstance. This guy is going to be on demon time with all the, you know, you know, whenever those second round picks succeed, a lot of times it's like all these guys got taken. Jaden Hardy is never going to let that go. And he got put in the perfect situation. Like, so phenomenal. So uh, I want to hear you talk about this, but um, that's who I thought P- Chip was going to call out because he is 11th on your board and um, as high as that is even NBA draft Twitter's consensus board has him 16th and he fell all the way to 37th and the great situation is Dallas so so tell us all about him what do we, what do we need to know yeah so coming into the year ESPN had him ranked as the number two recruit in the class he was like the premier signing for the G League night um, and the first half of the season frankly he was horrible terrible Um, But I think that kind of humbled him in a way where he was like, oh, this isn't, I can't just take jumpers and create space and take pull-up threes and mid-range jumpers and just beat people because that's what he did in high school and that worked for him, right? Um, So he kind of realized, I need to move well without the ball. I need to keep the ball moving. I need to try defensively. And the second half of the season, it was like night and day. Um, So on shots, like off, so his shooting percentage, I think from three is like somewhere in the low 30s in the season. Second half of the season, it's around 36%. And if you look at just like catch and shoots and off ball stuff, it's in the 40s. And his free throw percentage is 87%. So, so you buy him as a I do buy him as a viable shooter. I think he's going to be a very good shooter. Um, And he, he just got, he's so good at moving without the ball. He's a great shooter. He can get to the paint. He has some issues finishing when he gets there. But again, it's not like absolutely terrible. It's like not great, but it's improvable. And also he's going to be scoring a lot of points off jumpers from the perimeter. He's a good passer. He gets downhill. And having that handle where he can get to where he wants gives him a lot of potential. And then defensively, he's good. He's he's become pretty good on ball because, I mean, he's 20, but he's like 6'4", 200 pounds of guards. He's got good, like strong guard size. And he's a pretty functional athlete. He's very shifty. Um, so I personally think he's he's going to be an okay-ish on-ball defender, but the, the reason I really like him is just he's a phenomenal shooter. He's super creative and creating advantages and catching defenders off guard and getting where he wants to go. And then he's a great shooter. And I think I look at like guys who've kind of fallen and succeed. You look at like Jordan Poole and Tyrese Maxey. I feel like a huge part of those guys' games, especially in the rookie year, was how good they are at moving without the ball and playing off of both of them were really fortunate. I think this is an important point. Jordan Poole got put next to Steph Curry, not for the first year, but for this last like year or so, right? And Tyrese Maxey got put next to Joel Embiid. Luckily for Tayden Hardy, the Dallas Mavericks do have a player that might be good to play off of. 
So when you've got a, an elite shooter, off-ball mover, super creative, going to make things happen as a shot creator. You're talking about Jalen Brunson? Yeah, exactly. Getting next yeah. to Jalen Brunson and Dorian Finney-Smith is really big for him. And I think Maxi Kleber as well can have a super positive effect. Maybe even Spencer Dinwiddie with the new acquisitions. So so in all, in all seriousness, though, it sounds like one of the reasons why this is such a great fit in addition to being a more competitive team and um, championship aspirations and the slight of going in the second round and all that stuff is that five out multiple attackers, he can do that, but then he's also going to have these skills that he can potentially hone playing off of Luca's gravity and all the attention he draws on the defense. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Chip, anything else before we get out of here? This was amazing. Um, I think we're generally, oh, um, one, actually, we can talk one other guy real quick. One other guy, okay. We'll, we'll touch on one. 30, 30 seconds or less. Let's, okay. let's, let's bang it EJ out. EJ Liddell went number 41 to the Pelicans. Uh, really cool. Don't know why he fell. It's probably similar to Duran where teams don't like those like between size bigs, but his second side rim protection and shooting and decision making is all really good. Um, and then the one guy I kind of like to touch on, number 57, Jabari Walker. 57. Wow. Yes. Swinging for the fences. Yes. And I think Jabari Walker was, we talked about that kind of anchoring bias where the start of the season goes poorly and then everyone yeah. gives up on a player. Jabari Walker is a freshman last season. He's like legitimately like six, eight and a half, six, nine shot really well, really good athlete. And people were really high on him coming into this season. And then he was really bad to start the year um, before he got into conference play pretty much. So for the first 14 games of the year, he averaged 13 points and eight rebounds. He shot 56% on twos, but 22% on threes and 69% from the free throw line. Not very nice. And then for the final 18 games of the season, he ended up averaging 18 points, 10 rebounds. He shot 50% on twos, 43.5% on threes, 86% from the free throw line. So I feel like that first half, he was really good as a, as a freshman. Then Colorado lost pretty much all their good players, and he all of a sudden had to create stuff. Bad for the first half of the season. Phenomenal in the second half of the season. Dad's an NBA player. He's a good defender. He's got size. He can shoot the cover off the ball. I don't know how he fell to 57 but I do think with the Blazers, I think he is going to be a very good forward for them moving forward. And I think he's a lock to return top 30 value. Chip Jones, Chip, um, Chip J NBA. Yeah. On, is that, is that Twitter? Twitter. Yep. YouTube. Yeah. And then if you, and then if you want uh, to access, uh, Chip has put out a ton of videos on these prospects, Boncaro, uh, the Chet Holmgren is great. Um, I think you've got a Keegan Murray. Is yep. that right? Keegan, that Dyson, yep. Tari. Yeah, Tara Eason. Um, you can check that out on his YouTube as well, Chip Jones NBA. Chip, thanks so much um, for taking the time and educating us on all of this and everything you do. If you want to support this show directly, everything we do at Thinking Basketball, um, check out patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. We've got more content over there, historical stuff. We have a community where, I mean, God, goodness knows what they talk about every day. They've got drafts and arguing about young players and, and things of this nature. Patreon.com slash Thinking Basketball. That is it for this one. Hope you enjoyed our 2022 draft course and that wherever you're listening from, of course, you are having a great day. <laughs>